Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. This is uh, the year of eternal things. Just This year, we're just kind of trying to to remember that life is not just what we see in front of us. It's not just the things that are temporary. Um, It's not the things that come and go, but that there are things that we cannot see, things that are permanent, eternal, forever, and that in many ways these are the most real things. And how do we live lives on this earth without succumbing to the temptation and deception that this is all we have and that this is all we are? Um, and so Colossians is kind of a good book to kind of help us through that. So we've been looking at that and thinking about that a little bit. Um, so just to remind you kind of where we ended up last week or a couple of weeks ago now, where we ended up, uh, is that Paul had just said this very, very big statement. He said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your heart, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul has been taking the first couple chapters of Colossians to just say very, very big things. And he keeps talking about the gospel in just these huge ways. It's so much more than just a question of sort of the creed you accept or the, or the philosophies you believe or the ethics that you follow or the, the moral lessons that you take from, from Scripture and Jesus' teachings. So much more. It's these huge, amazing, beautiful, powerful, life and nature-changing truths that you have been made alive. Where you were once dead, now you can be called alive. Where your, your whole legal indebtedness, every shame that you feel, every crime that you have committed, every sin against man and against God, every, everything that makes you feel unworthy has been taken away, has been canceled. All that legal indebtedness has been literally canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. It condemns you, but it's gone. And so now you're no longer condemned. It says that he forgave you all your sins. It says that he made you alive. These are big, big things. And Paul wants to say to us, I think throughout the book of Colossians, he wants to say to us, I know how easy it is to take all these incredibly deep life-changing, nature-changing truths, these things that go to the heart of who you are and what your life is, I think Paul would say he knows how easy it is to take those things and start thinking of them very shallowly and start forgetting what it means to have an eternal perspective, to think in terms of eternal things. It's very easy to suddenly become very temporal-minded, very focused on the things that are so shallow And even to take deep truths like this and sort of hold them, but hold them in such a shallow way that they don't change the way we live, the way we see ourselves, or the way we see God. And Paul wants to say, it shouldn't be that way. These things should change the way you see God. They should change the way you see yourself. They should change the way that you live your life. They should change your very understanding of what life even is. And so that's where we're going to pick up here in in verse 16 is he's going to begin to talk a little bit about how it should change our perspectives. How it should change the way we see God, the way we see ourselves, and the way we see others. As he goes a little further into Colossians, he is going to start talking about how it should change the way we live. He actually does that a little bit here today as well. So here's what he says. He says, therefore, and this therefore comes off of the things we just said, because everything has changed, right? Whether you know it's changed or not, whether you accept it's changed or not, You are no longer guilty. You're no longer condemned. It's been nailed to the cross. You are now free. You are now acceptable to God. You are approved of by God. You are worthwhile to God. And it makes sense if you remember that's what he's saying. This therefore then makes a lot of sense. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Right? If God has declared you righteous and holy and alive, don't let anyone else tell you that's not true. I mean, if you think back over those of you who've been with us for a few weeks now, if you think back over these earlier verses in Colossians, everything he's been talking about is so big. 
And he's been talking about this power of Christ, that Christ is the center of everything. He holds everything together. He ties everything together. He created everything and everything continues to exist at his pleasure. And then in that bigness of who he is, he then laid down his life and through the death of his body, his body that he chose to inhabit in this magical, amazing way that a transcendent, only supremely powerful God could do, in this body that he died, he somehow put to death your condemnation, your shame, your guilt, your judgment. So therefore, says Paul, who is anybody else to say that Christ is wrong <laughs> and that you should be judged? And he says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you by these things. Now, these are all examples of things that the, the, the Jews would have been doing as part of their law, things that they had learned to do through the Old Testament. And they had come to see, not necessarily that God even said this to them, but they had come to see these as things which made them acceptable before God. I would argue that wasn't exactly what God intended for them to see them. He did intend them to see them as good things. So understand there's nothing in this verse nor anywhere in scripture where Paul ever says that the law was bad. Paul was not opposed to the law. Paul was, Paul was I think, proud even after becoming a gospel. He had a certain sort of respect and, and gratitude for his ability to keep the law when he did. So he doesn't say it's bad. But he says, don't let anyone judge you by those. These things now, what happens? We've got Gentiles who are Christians. We've got Jews who are Christians. We've got a mixture in the church of people who are, who are following different policies, applying different routes to these. Some of them are celebrating the new moon festivals and feasts that are commanded in the Old Testament. Some of them are honoring the Sabbath. Some of them are honoring the Lord's Day, which is not the Sabbath. Some of them are eating and drinking according to the old rules, and some of them are not. And Paul just says, that is all not who you are. Don't let anyone judge you by that. And then he says, the reason you shouldn't is these are but a shadow. These are but a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See, this is the picture, and I just think this is such a beautiful picture and so important to understand. Christ is the center of the universe. He is the biggest object in the entire universe, if you want to think in those terms. And he sits only in the light. And so you have this huge object and the light is, is just shining upon it. And that means as the biggest object in the universe that it casts this incredibly long shadow throughout all of, all of really, I think, history and future. I think you could say cast shadows everywhere, but we'll keep it simple for now. It casts these shadows down throughout all of history. And all these things that the Jews understood about the new moon celebrations, about the Sabbath and about the festivals and about the feasts, they're simply shadows, they're reflections of Christ. And, and if you were somebody who for some reason were drawn to shadows more than you were drawn to substance, first of all, that would be odd, right? But if you were, what you might learn is that when you saw a shadow and you really liked that shadow and you're like, that is a cool shadow. That looks like a handsome shadow, a beautiful shadow. That shadow looks like a nice shadow. That shadow will treat me kindly. That shadow never hurt anybody. Probably true. But if you were drawn to the shadows, what you might learn over time is that you could then follow that shadow to the source of the shadow, right? And what hopefully you would be wise enough to discover is that when you lift your eyes from the shadow and look up to the person who's casting the shadow, you realize that person is three-dimensional and even more beautiful and even hopefully nicer I guess that's not a given with people in their shadows, but, but, but you, you would see that person is so much more. And how weird would it be if after meeting the person, the substance, having the joy of a, of a, of a hug or, or hearing their voice or speaking to them or seeing an actual smile, which is really hard to see on a shadow. What if after enjoying all that, you went, I like the shadow better. I'm just going to go back to the shadow. And this is what Paul is saying. There's nothing wrong with the shadow. The shadow is an accurate reflection of the source, but it's a really shallow one, right? Our shadows are, are just the barest depiction of who we are. They're distorted and they're two-dimensional and they're black and white. 
but we're solid with substance and personality. It's like the only thing more superficial than our flesh itself would be our shadow. <laughs> it's like as far out as you can go on the shallow end of who someone is. And, and Paul says, this is your problem. Everything you see in the law, all of these sacrifices, all these things that were done, they're good because they're reflections of the ultimate good, but they're shallow. They're two-dimensional and they're black and white. And Christ has now come. We now know who the actual substance is. And his substance is incredible. It is so big. It is so bold. That's what he's been spending all of Colossians saying. It's so, he's so powerful and so beautiful. How small, how weird, how shallow to simply go back to the shadows. But notice his whole point here is not to just condemn people for focusing on the shadows. His whole point is one of encouragement. It's to say to you, don't let anyone judge you because of your shadow. <laughs> I mean, how superficial is that? What if you met people who were drawn to shadows and they were like, I don't like you because your shadow's weird. <laughs> your shadow doesn't say anything smart. Your shadow is so shallow and it's black and white and you would say, that's true, good thing my shadow's not me. <laughs> I mean, Paul is trying to say, how weird letting people judge you by these things, these laws, is, is so shallow. So don't be worried about their judgments because Jesus, the substantive center of the universe, says you're made alive and you're holy. And when someone else comes along and says you're just nothing, you don't have to believe them. And we may not have the, the laws, but let's be honest. We all have our own set of standards that we apply that we think are what make us alive or righteous. The things that we think, if I only did this better, or if I only didn't do this anymore, these are the things we think make us worthy, make us approved of, make us righteous, and make us alive. And, and we take these standards, and we not only judge ourselves with them, but we judge each other with them. And it's very easy to feel judged, because we often are. How we raise our kids how we do church, the religious activities we do or don't engage in, how, what we do with our money, what we watch, what we wear, what we eat, what we drink. It's so easy to be judged by other people on these things and to own those judgments. And Paul says, the good news is, that's not who you are. That's not the essence of you. That's not the substance of you. So don't let people judge you that way. Now, to be clear, can you stop people from judging you that way? No, I think what he really means is don't own it. Which is hard, isn't it? It is hard. You know why it's hard? Because we have learned all our life to judge ourselves based upon other people's judgments. It's a hard habit to break. But Paul wants to say, what is their judgment compared to Christ? They say to you, you're guilty, you're shameful, you're reproachful, you're unworthy. And Paul says, what you should do is say, Jesus nailed it to the cross, canceled the indebtedness, and made me alive with Christ. Who are you to say he is wrong? He goes on and he begins to talk sort of specifically about those in the Colossians time who are making these judgments. I think there's a number of books in the New Testament that are written with the intent to encourage a church which is being really harassed by a heresy. It isn't just that Paul wants to clear up doctrinal issues. He does, but it isn't just that he wants to clear up doctrinal issues. It's that he and John later in 1 John, these are two I think of very specifically, they recognize that these heresies are coming with a lot of judgment and shame and guilt, and they want to encourage those who are of the church, those who are saints, to not take ownership of these heresies which are judging them. And so Paul's going to begin to talk about these people and say, here's how, why you should ignore them. <laughs> here's why you don't have to own their judgment. Here's why you can be safe in dismissing them. And he goes on, he says this, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. 
Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen, and they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Before we get into the details, I just want you to notice the amount of disdain that Paul has for these people. Let's look at the things he said of them. Number one, they delight in false humility. They revel in pretending to be humble when in fact they're not. He also says of them that they go into great detail about what they have seen. They like to talk a lot and they puff themselves up with their talk. They say, I've seen amazing things and that's what makes me so special. But he says they're puffed up with what? Idle notions. The things they think are dumb. They're in vain. They mean nothing. They have no power. And what is it about their mind that leads them to idle notions? They're unspiritual. Now, he doesn't just mean, you know, unspiritual is an interesting word for us today. We just think that means whatever. They don't go to church or whatever. But he means literally what we've been talking about. They don't have an eternal perspective. They have a very solidly temporal, fleshly perspective. Their minds are all centered on their flesh and their body and their physicality. And they're, they're shallow. He's saying these people are shallow. Don't accept their judgments because they're shallow. When he says this, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Here again, I don't think he means in the same way that he said, don't let them judge you. I don't think you really can stop them. And I don't think here he means that they can actually disqualify you. Because how could they disqualify you? They don't have any authority. They're unspiritual and idle. Their notions are stupid. <laughs> they don't really disqualify you. But he's saying, don't own it. Don't let them convince you you're disqualified. He says, they're unqualified to tell you that you're unqualified, is his point. But they look good. Do you get that? He speaks so demeaningly of them because it's not obvious, right? He's not punching down. He's not picking on them. The fact is, these are the people who present themselves as very spiritual, super spiritual. They're coming to the Colossians and saying, we worship angels. We have this incredible communication and relationship with angels. Even this idea that they worship angels, this is a funny thing. And we're going to see this repeated throughout this passage. And I think it may be the main point I really want us to kind of grasp tonight, which is this idea of worship. He talks about them worshiping angels. Well, when you worship something, by definition, what it's supposed to be about is the person you're worshiping, right? When you worship someone, it means that you're saying they're worthy of your adoration. They are so far above you that they're worthy to be worshipped. God says there's only one being in the universe that fits this category, and that's God. But even as we think about it, that's what worship means. If you worship a person, you shouldn't. But if you worship a celebrity, it means you think they are really, really better than you. They're worthy of things. But these people who worship angels... Their worship of angels becomes a way of glorifying themselves. Do you see that in this description? Their worship of angels isn't about worshiping angels. It's about glorifying themselves. We have this relationship with angels. We have this connection with spiritual forces. We have this incredible power because we worship angels. But they don't worship angels. They just exalt themselves by pretending to worship angels. And that's why Paul says they have what? False humility. They pretend that they recognize the greatness of angels and that they recognize they're so much less than that. But when they speak to you, Colossians, all they do is pump themselves up and tell you how special they are because they worship angels. He says they're fooled and they're foolish and they're stupid. They have idle notions. And they pump themselves up and they puff themselves up. And then they come to you and say, you're not qualified because you don't worship the angels we worship. You're not as good as we are, and then they judge you for not doing the things the way they do it. And Paul is saying, they have no authority for this. <laughs> they are unqualified themselves. They have no spiritual mind. How can they judge your spirituality? I think this idea of worship, I'm going to use a phrase Paul's going to use later. He talks about self-imposed worship. That's an interesting phrase. What is self-imposed worship? It means you look at yourself and you say, I'm, I'm going I'm to worship now. And the worship comes from you. And I get it. We gather together on Sunday nights and there's an intention, right? There's a choice that we make. We say, we're going to worship now. But I think we all deep down recognize that simply singing the songs, even if you raise your hands and, and do the right motions and look right, 
that's not worship, is it? I mean, it might be, but it isn't inevitably so. It could just be music. It could just be choreography. Because worship, real worship, is never self-imposed. It's never even initiated by us. What is real worship? Real worship is an overflow of adoration and devotion of the person you worship. Don't you see that? Worship is never inspired by ourselves. It's inspired by God. Real worship comes from seeing God and being overwhelmed by who he is. And then worship flows. Which is why it's really hard to boast about being a really good worshiper. (laughs) Right? These people to the Colossians are like, we worship angels really well. Well, that's self-imposed worship. Paul wants to say, when you worship God, just be grateful that God brought you to that place because that's what worship is. It's always inspired by God because God is worthy of it, not because you're good at it. (laughs) I think most of us know we're pretty bad at worship, right? We have a great worship team. But as humans, we're all pretty bad at worship. We forget to adore God. We have a hard time adoring God. Things get in the way. We get in the way. And this is what he's saying to them. They have this false humility. They worship angels, but it's all about them. Real worship is about the person you worship, but this worship they have, it's about them. It's about puffing themselves up. He says, they judge you not from a position of genuine awe in God. They judge you from a position of they don't even care about God. They're focused on themselves. And it's kind of ironic that worship can become a way of exalting themselves when worship should literally be about exalting someone else who's more worthy than themselves, but that's exactly what they're doing. We don't know the exact nature of this heresy that leads to not only Gnosticism, but this worship of angels. We don't really know what that means, but it doesn't matter. We understand this idea. You know, Christians, if you ever find yourself in a conversation where you are unintentionally finding that you are presenting to an unbeliever the idea that you're better than them because you're a Christian, you should reverse course and try again. Because I don't think very many people will come to the gospel under the guise that somebody superior to them said it was a good idea. Or someone who thinks they're superior to them said it was a good idea. In our speech to other people about the fact that we happen to be worshipers of God, that we have been saved by Christ, it should be one of gratitude and genuine humility. Not one that says, I was smart enough to get on board this train. Maybe if you're smart enough, you will too. Anything that smacks of elitism and superiority is not the gospel that Paul or Jesus seem to preach. Paul continues to expand on this idea. He says this, he says, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. This one sentence says so much. First thing he reminds us of is that Jesus, the center of the universe, is also the head of the church, right? And he says, these people that are coming to you and telling you how to have a better connection with God, if you would just do what they do and be what they do, who are judging you because your way of doing religion and connecting with God is not their way, and they think they're in a better position to tell you, Paul says, they don't even have a connection with the head. They've lost it. They've forgotten that Jesus is truly the head of the church and not they themselves. But he goes further than that. He indicates, he implies not only have they lost connection with the head, but if you lose connection with the head, you're no longer part of the body. So all those sinews and ligaments that are all part of the body working together, which you are part of, says Paul, he says they're not even part of that. They speak to you from a position of complete lack of qualification. They judge you for not being worthy, but they aren't even connected to the head, the head that said you're worthy the head that took away your indebtedness and your shame and your condemnation. And then he says this. He says the body grows as who causes it to grow? God. The sinews and ligaments don't cause the body to grow. God causes the body to grow. 
See, these, these, these heretics were coming to the Colossians and saying, we can help you grow. We can make you more righteous. Follow us. Listen to us. We'll tell you these amazing things we've seen, these incredible spiritual experiences we've had. Paul says, they're not spiritual. They're not connected to the head. And they can't make you grow. It's God who causes the body to grow. One of the reasons we do focus the way we do, where we believe in many-to-many discipleship, is because I absolutely wholeheartedly am convinced that kind of the piece we've often been missing in discipleship is a real clear conviction that really any discipleship we talk about doing for each other is shorthand for the realization that it is God who causes all the growth. That's why I think even in discipleship, what we do is we share the grace of God with each other. Because it's grace, says Paul to Titus, it's grace that teaches us godliness. It's the power of God. All we do is become vessels for it with each other. And that's important. God decides to do it that way. That's the sinews and ligaments and all of us are part of that. We do our job. We do our part. But if we forget that Christ is the head and that God is the grower, then we're doing nothing. It's really an interesting thing. I think as, a, as human beings, it's hard. You know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Those of you who have kids, sometimes as, as your kids are growing up, you, you wrestle with this idea of, of they have kids and humans, adults too. But let's deal with kids because, sorry, kids, it's easier for us to pick on you. But, but it's true for adults as well. But if you've been a parent, you've seen this really clearly. As your kids are younger, what, there's two ways they can evade responsibility for their wrong actions. And they seem opposite, but they're the same. One way you evade responsibility for your actions as an adult or a child is you simply say, I did nothing wrong. You simply just avoid it altogether, refuse to acknowledge there's anything wrong, and you, you say, I'm perfect. But the other way is to say, I am only wrong. Everything I do is wrong. Everything I am is wrong. And there's nothing good I can do. And let's be honest, when people do that to you, our human nature is to want to back up a little bit and say, well, no, you're not all wrong, because that's clearly not true. But the reality is this flip-flop back and forth. Both of these are simply ways of saying, either I can't help it, I'm perfect, so you're just wrong, or I'm so completely wrong about everything, I can't change anyway, so there's no point in trying. And I think we have this thing, even in the church, we have this question How important are we? And the gospel tells us two things at once. And we can do the same kind of slingshot reaction where we avoid the real message of the gospel because I think the gospel says to us, on the one hand, you're completely unnecessary. (laughs) God can do it all without you. And on the other hand, the gospel says you are completely indispensable because God has chosen to do it through you. But it's, that's hard for us to hold. How can we be both unnecessary and indispensable? And I don't have the complete answer to that, but I think what's important is we keep that tension true. Because when we slingshot back and forth, when we say, I am the indispensable member of the church, then I guarantee you, you've suddenly made yourself unnecessary. <laughs> but likewise, when we say, I am the only dispensable member of the church, you've also completely bought into a lie. We're all sinews and ligaments. And to try to figure out who's most indispensable is like saying which sinew and ligament do you want to remove from your body. I think in heaven we'll discover both how indispensable we are and also how indispensable everyone else is at the same time. And this idea of any of us being more indispensable than anyone else will just seem foolish. And at the same time, we'll recognize that the only truly indispensable part was Christ. And somehow all that will be true at once. But it's hard for us to grasp right now. But the question is, how do we live this way? How do we have an eternal perspective which says, I will not be judged by those unqualified to judge? And honestly... In this context, it means everybody except Christ is unqualified to judge. How do we live that way? Surely, it does matter what we do sometimes, and and I'm not saying it doesn't. 
but how do we live as people who have this perspective that somehow we're part of the body, Christ is the center, Christ is the head, he says we're free, he says we're guilt-free, he says he doesn't condemn us, he says move forward in that understanding, how should that affect the way we live? C.S. Lewis says something interesting. We talk about humility and false humility. And I want to I make this distinction because he's going to talk again about the false humility of the heretics as he tells us how to live. I think C.S. Lewis says it well, although to be honest, I'm going to paraphrase the way he says it because everybody does. He never said it this way, but it works well. He did say this much more long-windedly. What C.S. Lewis says is this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility isn't saying, I am less worthy, I am less important, I am bad, I am, you know, it's not it being self-deprecating. Because notice what happens when you're being self-deprecating. Where is your focus and what are you thinking about and what are you obsessed with? Yourself. <laughs> True humility is just thinking less about yourself at all. Now, notice that the tricky thing here, right, is if you're like, I'm going to be humble now. I'm going to think less about myself. How am I going to do that? Gosh, I think so much about myself. I really should stop doing that. I, 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 I. It's, it's tricky, but, but that's part of the point that Paul's going to make. Let's walk through that and see that. So here's the deal. So here's one thing that happens. Paul says this. He says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. So Paul is about to address something we call asceticism. Asceticism is the denial of physical pleasures. It's the denial of the flesh. Asceticism is saying, I'm going to deny the stuff that my flesh says it wants because presumably that will help me have an eternal perspective. But Paul says no. And here's why he says no. And I want you to think about this because it's a little bit tricky. See, Paul has just spent a lot of time telling us, don't let someone judge you by what you do. You are so much more than that. Your behavior, though not irrelevant, Paul will get to behavior later in Colossians, but you've got to lay that aside for a moment. It's got to come in the right order. And what Paul says now is, your behavior, though not irrelevant, is not you. It isn't. And your flesh is not you. And now here's what I want you to notice. There's two ways to confuse yourself into thinking that your flesh is you and what you do in it is your life. One way is the hedonist approach. Most of us are aware that that's a bad approach. That's why we're not talking about the problem with hedonism, but we'll just, we'll just acknowledge it right now. The problem with hedonism is it says, my life is comprised of the physical pleasures. My life is comprised only of feeling good in the flesh. So eat what I eat, what I drink, what I do, the pleasure I feel. All these physical things, these define who I am. This is my life. And Paul says that's a really shallow way to see life. And we all say, yes, we agree. But Paul says, notice this. If you spend all your time going the other direction and saying, my life is comprised of avoiding the physical pleasures for my flesh, that my life is comprised of what I don't eat and what I don't drink and the physical pleasures I don't have in the flesh, Paul says, guess what? You are still crediting with life your flesh. He says, whether it's because you give over to the pleasures of the flesh or because you convince yourself that you will be righteous, approved of, and experience life if you can stop doing those things in the flesh, he says, in either way, you have decided that your flesh is what defines who you are. And Paul says, they're both wrong, one is just a little more subtle and insidious. See, because he says, oh, it's not up there. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says these rules which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, all of these rules, we have to make rules in our world, but it's important to understand that every rule we make right now in our world only makes sense right now in our world. And that when we're in new bodies, it, they won't even make sense. They won't matter. It's as if we all said the only law that we need to obey is the very first law that gave Adam and Eve, that God gave Adam and Eve, and that's not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know what the problem with making that our only law is? I don't know where that tree is. Do you? I mean, literally, that doesn't apply to us, at least not in a literal sense. 
think there may be some lessons there. But we can't simply say that that context doesn't make sense to us. It was a temporary injunction. By the way, go back to a lot of the laws of the Old Testament. And I don't care how, who you talk to who tries to bring those laws all forward to the New Testament, there are always laws they leave out because some of them are literally impossible because our context doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It's not who we are anymore. So I think Paul is saying, guess what? All the laws and rules and regulations would make so much sense to you now, and maybe some of them are good rules. He's not saying they're bad rules, but he's saying they're temporary. They're going to perish. And so when you make them life, you make life temporary. You're basing your life on temporary ideas and ideals. These are based on merely human commands and teachings, not upon who God is. So you ask yourself, but then, but isn't there benefit? Isn't there benefit in doing these rules? Isn't there benefit in avoiding these things? Let me be clear, and I'm going to talk about this in just a little bit. I think there are things that it's best to stay away from. Okay? But Paul wants to be really clear here. If that's how you define your righteousness and how you define your life, you're going to lose every time. And this is why he says that, because this is what happens. This is the real problem with asceticism. First of all, he says this. He says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. One of the things that these do, asceticism does, is it does make you look wise. He acknowledges it. Makes you look good. You walk into a room and you say, oh, I don't touch that because I understand how bad it is for me. Right? Whether it's meat or anything else. You, you know those people who have an elitist view of that. And sometimes just your ability to not do what everybody else does can have an appearance of wisdom because it takes some effort, right? So there is an appearance of wisdom. It makes you look holy. If you can do these things and you can restrict from these things, you look, and, and there may even be, you know, there may even be some wisdom behind it, right? So, so the hedonist burns his body out doing all these things that are bad for him. And the person who refrains from that looks a lot wiser at the end of the day because he's healthier, right? So there's this appearance of wisdom. So that's one of the reasons people may do it. He goes on and he says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. There's that idea again. The point here again being, it's not worship that flows out of an adoration of God. It's worship that you're defining by what you don't do. Now, there's no real logical or spiritual connection between saying, I am not going to do certain things, and that means that I, am now, I now adore God more. It's always possible that in your adoration and devotion and worship of God, you will decide not to do certain things, but you understand how that's vastly different from what I just said. The question is, what flows from what? Paul says at one point, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. But what's interesting is it's a lot easier to turn that on its head. The problem is it's wrong. You can say, oh, so what Paul said is if I just don't walk in the desires of the flesh, then I'll be walking in the spirit. To which Paul would say, I never prayed that promise at all. It doesn't go both directions. Worship is an overflow of the adoration you feel for God. Self-imposed worship is I'm going to not do things and then it will look to people like I'm worshiping God. He goes on and he says, they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility. Again, false humility means you look like you're thinking less of yourself, but what you're not doing is thinking less about yourself. Your whole life is focused on this appearance of wisdom and this self-imposed worship and how do I look and how good am I? Which is really getting to the heart of what this is all about. What Paul wants to say is, don't let anybody judge you on those things because by letting them judge you on these things, by owning the judgments they give you, by saying that they can tell me I'm disqualified, you actually immediately become like them because you become focused on yourself and you become focused on how you look and you become focused on this false humility. Do I look humble? Instead of being focused on God and letting the overflow of your devotion and adoration of God become actual genuine worship. And the reality is, it's easier to follow a bunch of rules than it is to get a glimpse of God sometimes. Because you're in control of one, 
barely in control of the other. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you've got to know that the one does not produce the other. Asceticism does not lead you to see God. There's no such promise. Seeing God may lead you to give up some things, but that's an entirely different thing. He says their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. This is some of the bottom line of what the Colossian heretics were teaching was, you know, be hard on your body, just, just discipline your body, submit your body. Maybe they were actually literally beating themselves, cutting themselves. We don't know. Again, there's a lot of details we don't know. But they were, they were, maybe they're just treating their body harshly but not eating and not drinking just like basic substance level. Who knows? But Paul says it's just harsh treatment of the body. And again, Paul wants to say to the Gnostics, you're the ones who say the body is evil. I don't think the body's evil. And I think what you do in the body matters. But I don't think being mean to your body does any good at all. That in and of itself means nothing. Again, if you give up things because you worship God, that's one thing. But if you think by being mean to your body, that is worshiping God, that's another thing, and it's a false thing. There's no truth in it at all. It's interesting to me that, that, that in our enlightened perspective, as we've come down over the years, we have come to recognize that many of us are so convoluted in our brains that we think we need to be punished, and we've figured out ways to punish ourselves whether it's through how we eat or the relationships we have or the things that we do. And I think what Paul would say to us in our modern day is he would say, guess what? That punishment doesn't make you any closer to God. <laughs> that punishment is a reaction to the judgment of people who are not qualified to judge you. And Paul would say to them, so don't own that judgment. Get away from that position which says, I deserve to be punished. Get away from that position which says, I don't deserve to have good things. But then he says something really amazing. It's one thing to say these regulations have an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed worship, false humility, and harsh treatment of the body. Let me tell you something. I used to go around churches and do conferences, and it is amazing how often when I would finish a conference in which I preached about grace and I preached about identity, I preached about a lot of these things, and I would tell them your behavior doesn't determine who you are. So many of these conference, conferences, I would have a man come up, I would have a, 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 a man or youth come up and a woman come up, talk to me privately, and so often it was the same things. So many men came up to me and said, I really wrestle with pornography, and I don't know how to apply what you just told me. Because are you telling me I shouldn't try not to look at pornography? Are you saying just go for it? <laughs> and I would say, no, I think it's important not to look at pornography, but let's, let's talk about why it's such a trap. And I would have women come up to me, and they would say, I struggle with depression. And I don't know how to get out of that, but are you telling me I should just embrace it and be depressed forever? And I would say, no, I don't think that's God's plan for you either, but let's talk about why that's such a trap. And what was interesting about these two, I think the reason these two came up a lot is because these are two things that people, they may try at first when they come into a church, but they quickly stop acknowledging and admitting. And the reason is that when you go to someone as a man and you say, I really wrestle with pornography, the man on the other end of that, who may also, in many instances, also wrestles with pornography, he doesn't know how to fix it. So what he says to you is, stop. And after a while, when you can't stop, you just stop telling people because you're just going to hear the same thing. And the same is true with depression. Women would go to people and say, I'm depressed. And someone would say to them, well, just don't worry. Be happy. I'll sing you a song. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Here's a little song I wrote. Um, and, and after a while, you stop bringing it up because... Nobody, and it's understandable. And it is also understandable that people don't know how to fix it. I'm not saying that this is a failure. I'm just saying it's what it is. <laughs> but here's the thing about both of those. You would think that in those cases, like the guy who looks at pornography, he says to me, surely there's value, even if it is false, even if it is all these things we talked about, surely there's value in simply trying not to do it. But I want you to look at the next thing Paul says here, because it's kind of shocking. He says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining the sensual indulgence. So Paul says not only are they all these bad things, but guess what? They don't work. <laughs> they don't actually keep it from happening. 
And when I would talk to somebody who was experiencing pornography, and I'd say, how have you dealt with it in the past? How do you try to combat it? And they say, well, I just try really hard not to look at it. And I say, how do you do that? And they say, you know, whatever. Some variant of this would come out of their mouths. I just remind myself all the time that I shouldn't be looking at pornography. And I say, so 90% of your day, you're thinking about pornography. And they say, well, yeah, but if I don't, I drop my guard and then I look at it. And I say, so, you're not, so that's working for you? And they say, well, no, that's not working for me either. <laughs> And, and again, it goes back to what Paul said at the beginning. The problem is, here's what the person with depression and the person with pornography and any number of other sins that you may struggle with, that you have a hard time getting rid of. Here's the really difficult lesson that Paul is telling us here. And it's this. If you have got it in your head, if you have convinced yourself that I will be righteous and alive if I simply stop doing this, you've already lost the battle. Because number one, that's not true. If that man stops looking at pornography and that woman somehow magically gets rid of depression, guess what? That doesn't make them more holy or more alive. So it's a lie from the get-go. So really what I t would tell them is, number one, I'm only here for a few minutes and I, I can't, I, you know, even if I was here for months, I don't know if I could fix this. But here's what I want you to start doing, start thinking about. Weed yourself, wean yourself of that deception of the idea that if I stop feeling depressed, then I'll be worthy before God. Because that feeling right there is letting yourself be judged and taking ownership of what other people are saying. And guess what it does? It makes you feel more depressed. And I would say to the person with pornography, wean yourself of the idea that if I just stop looking at pornography, then I'll be worthy like the rest of these guys. First of all, most of the rest of these guys are struggling with pornography too, if the stats are true at all. But secondly, that isn't true. That isn't true. Even if you do learn to restrain one sensual indulgence, you'll just pick another one. <laughs> because it's that focus upon the idea that what I do in the flesh is what makes me alive and what makes me holy. And Paul is not giving an answer here, but he's telling you this is not the answer. He's saying that all these things simply reinforce the deception that you are your body and your behavior, and that's all you are. And here's the irony. If you truly are only your body and your behavior, and your body and your behavior are addicted to pornography, you can't change it. Because that's who you are. If your emotions and your body are the only thing you are, and your emotions and your body are causing depression, guess what? If that's truly the only thing you are, you can't change it. But Paul wants to say, you're not that shallow. You're not that superficial. Those people out there are telling you they are, and Paul wants to say they're the superficial ones. <laughs> they're the shallow ones. They're the ones who are telling you this is all you have. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians, the only thing that these rules and these regulations and these religious imperatives do is give you an opportunity to look holy. They give you an opportunity to fake it. They give you an opportunity to look like you're focused on God when deep down all you can think about is how you look to other people. There's only one way out of this trap. And that's Colossians 1 and 2. It's to go back to the recognition that the center of the universe is not you. See, this all sounds really selfless, right? This is that appearance of wisdom and, and false humility. Doing these things, being good, sounds like you're not being selfish Look, sometimes we are at our most selfish when we're doing things that don't look selfish at all. Sometimes we are at our most selfish when we're terrified of being judged and so we're doing things that look like we care about other people, but deep down the only thing we care about is us. How we look. That's a hard admission. And do not be that child who says, you're right, I'm only bad. But just recognize that anytime you're self-absorbed, and I don't care if the self-absorption is introspection about what you should or shouldn't do, which is sometimes appropriate, but if it's self-absorption, it's self-absorption. And what Paul says is, let's worship God. Self-imposed worship is focused on the self. But if we can get a glimpse of God, if we can be amazed by who he is and what he's done, if we can go back to Colossians 1 and 2 and say, 
Wow, he's the center of everything. He created everything. He holds everything together. And in that incredible power and in that incredible strength and in that incredible wisdom and in that incredible goodness and in that just incredible, incredible majesty of God, he somehow chose to take all that and cancel the indebtedness that you have. If we can focus on that, if we can grab that, if we can wrestle with that, if you want to wrestle with something, if you think that I need to wrestle with something to, to, to get better, I agree with you, but stop, stop making all of your wrestling about yourself. Make some of it, a good portion of it, about who God is. Make some of it, a good portion of it. Take the energy you expend on not looking bad to everyone else around you, which I know we all expend energy on that. I'm 53, I've been a pastor, I've had so much judgment in my life, and I keep wishing I was at the place that I just didn't care anymore, but I just don't seem to get there. Every time I think I'm there, someone says something that makes me feel bad, and I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not there yet. <laughs> so it's a, it's a wrestle, I get that. But the answer, again, even for me, wouldn't be to say, oh, I'm so insecure, how am I going to get past this? I need to focus on that, I need to fix that. The answer is to recognize who God is and don't own that judgment. Don't, don't let other people disqualify you. Christ has qualified you. Live in that. Dwell on that. Seek to be impressed by God. If you're not impressed by God right now, that's okay. Just keep looking for him because when you get a glimpse, it's impressive. And when you don't get a glimpse, blame God and keep crying out to him and let him take care of it because when you do that, your focus is where? On him. Make him responsible for it. Because you know what God wants? He wants to be responsible for it all. <laughs> he doesn't want you to be responsible for it all. He wants you to quit pretending you are. An extra 10% of your mental energy go towards how great thou art. And 10% less go towards how tortured I are. <laughs> Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.